Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome back to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. We have had a couple of weeks off on account of Nine Lessons and Carols for Socially Distanced People. Our live 24-hour show plus another four-hour encore. Hope you managed to catch some of that live or if not, lots of it is available on Catch Up now on our YouTube channel. Hosted the entire time by Robin with over a hundred special guests joining us throughout the 24 hours, including five astronauts and Josie, obviously, Helen Chersky, Robert Smith, Tim Minchin, Chris Jackson, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, uh, an all-star reading of A Christmas Carol with Guy Pearce and Sharon D. Clark and Eddie Izzard and Joel McHale and Joe Brand and lots of other people on that. So you can go to our YouTube channel or cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to catch up with that or any of the bits you might have missed or to re-watch your favourite bits. And also thank you very much to everyone who donated uh, to the crowdfunder as part of that. We raised uh, over £25,000 for the charities we were supporting this year, Doctors Without Borders, Mind Turn to Us and the King's Place Music Foundation. And a huge thank you has to go to our Patreon supporters as well, it has been a very long year without any live gigs and we wouldn't be able to do the live streams and the podcasts and stuff like Nine Lessons, to be honest, without the support of Patreon. So thank you very much. If you're not already a Patreon supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and you'll get extended editions of the Bookshambles podcast and lots of other goodies as well. On to this week's episode. It's a little bit of a Christmas theme this week. One little tidbit before we start. You might hear a couple of little bits of static or crackle just very, very briefly at a couple of points during this episode. Uh, Victor was having some issues with his microphone on his iPad. So that occasionally pops up, but uh, that should not distract from your enjoyment of the episode. Partly because it only happens like twice. But just to let you know, it's not, uh, it's not your headphones. It's Victor's microphone. And now, here is Robin and Julian and Victor. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. And today, well, today we're going to be talking uh, about the Gospels. And we're going to talk about Jesus. And we have with us uh, the uh, furious uh, atheist philosopher, uh, Julian Bagini. And we have the fire and brimstone preacher, uh, Victor Stock, to join us. Uh, neither of those people are those things. In fact, it's a disaster. This is a booking disaster <laughs> if this was one of those Sunday morning BBC debate shows like The Big Questions, uh, because we've actually got a very reasonable reasonable um philosopher and we've got a possibly overly reasonable uh, former <laughs> dean of guildford cathedral who uh, as many of you may may well have heard on on various episodes of, of, of the infinite monkey cage as well as possibly seeing uh in the pulpit in westminster abbey so hello to both of you good morning hello. robin maybe i should try to be unreasonable for entertainment value maybe it gets you more bookings apparently 
No, it is, you know, that, 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 that's what they want. <laughs> they, 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 they want, uh, as, as, as we know, it, it's never about education. It's always about uh, antagonism uh, on those kind of things. And this is a very reasonable. Let's start off just with this. The Godless Gospel um, is you rethinking, a, you know, a project which is, as you mentioned in the book, has been been, you know, kind of looked at before that idea of removing the the mysticism and the kind of the the elements of 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 magic uh from the gospels and seeing what you are left with um in terms of philosophically um is that fair to say yeah that is fair to say and it's not in an attempt to sort of suggest that that gets you back to the original or authentic jesus i have no idea uh, what the original historical jesus believed or said in fact I don't think anyone does, to be quite honest. We only have these records which are in the Gospels written many years later. But it's just that, you know, Christianity and Jesus's teachings as written in the Gospels are a very big part of our culture. And time and again, you get people saying, even Richard Dawkins saying, I don't believe Jesus was a son of God, but I believe he was a great moral teacher. And, you know, a lot of religious people are scathing about that, actually. They think that's ridiculous. If you take the Christ out of Jesus, you haven't got anything left. So I just wanted to take that proposition seriously. You know, take the Jesus that we know, assume he wasn't the son of God and that therefore all those miracles are, are made up and see what's left. And does it add up to anything really? And that's, and Victor, I'm into it because you, in terms of in, in various conversations we've had, it seems to me that the the magical elements, and I mean very, you know, literally, as in the the, the thing, the, those moments which, as our friend Brahma say, break the laws of physics. Uh, <laughs> that those that they're not the most important parts to you in terms of uh, the story of Jesus. Well, it's very difficult to answer. I mean, this is a typical Anglican, you know, elderly clergyman's, you know, on the one hand and one on the other answer, but. I think the work of late 20th century scholarship on the New Testament in particular has decided that you cannot unpick the supernatural and the apocalyptic, what you are describing as the magical, from the story of Jesus. It's all there together. And I have come to the conclusion over many years of study and thought, that we are dealing with literature. And we have to deal with this literature as the literature is. Having taken away uh, all that we can, we're left with, for example, the beginning of Mark's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's his opening sentence. So he, he's giving us in his opening sentence in the earliest gospel, he's setting out his stall for him, Jesus is, whatever this means to him, the son of God. So you've got to come to terms with the literature as it stands, it seems to me. Secondly, the literature as it stands historically centers on the last week in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. What are called the passion narratives are the earliest bits of the New Testament. The story from, good, from uh, Palm Sunday to Good Friday is the oldest bit and what got everybody going and therefore got all the other stuff in the New Testament written down was that last week and its interpretation of what people felt it was about summed up in the death and what people called the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in the church's year, we go grinding through the Bible and some of it's really impossibly awful and ghastly and rubbish. 
because a lot of what people think about God is impossibly awful or ghastly and rubbish. But we have to come to terms with what the literature gives us. For example, the earliest stuff in the New Testament, the first letter to, of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, that's the earliest thing before any of the Gospels are written, is about Jesus coming back in the clouds of glory at the end of time as the eternal son of God to wind up history. The stuff that we think, well, oh, come on, what's all that about? But that's what the first Christians believed. And now to enter into that world, that apocalyptic, imminent end of everything world, apart from COVID, is extraordinarily difficult for us to imagine. But we have to do it to try to understand what the first Christians believe. Then later on, when they got over the fact that it didn't happen, <laughs> which was a bit disappointing for everybody, they started to write the New Testament as we have it. And you get the early Paul, and then you get the first gospel, Mark, then Matthew and Luke, and then much, much later, in a completely different way, St. John, with a lot of Paul in between. But it's not about the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus is secondary to this event, the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the literature. Well, this is what I find, Julian, uh, the, one of the things is what people are hoping to get from their religion, from their faith. Because yeah. I think we know some people who, uh, and quite a few people I know who kind of work in or around the church, it is yeah. about life now. It is yeah. about yeah. this is what, uh, the, how, how am I to live my life now? And for other people, I think, it is about this is my escape. This is my escape plan. This is my supernatural escape plan. This, this is order upon chaos. So I think there are... You know, Julian, this is the thing that I find interesting to remove the supernatural element, which which is actually that also shows the division of why people are drawn to the story in the first place. Is it for now or is it an, an escape? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I'm sure there's sort of all sorts of shades in between that. And the nature of the escape may differ, too, in the sense that some people, may, they may not believe the escape will literally be a life after death, but it's some kind of connection with the beyond or something i mean just i just ought to go back to what victor said i mean i can totally accept everything victor said about the historical uh, story of the writings of the gospels and everything which is why you know this is not a book of of scholarship in that sense it's not meant to be historical but i think you, if victor's right then you've got um three possibilities left one is that you actually buy into the the supernatural elements you believe there was a real divinity about jesus and most of us are just not able to do this and many people even within the church aren't willing to do that the second as he suggests is that we treat it as literature we treat it as poetry in that sense we do take the whole the whole of it we don't take out the miracles because they're part of that literature and i think that's fair enough as well i think that's a perfectly reasonable approach but what i think is the the, the third approach and it may be the most historically inaccurate for sense is is to do what a lot of people claim to do which is to actually be interested in the teachings for the here and now and 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 not to have any particular concern with the tales of the supernatural true or not now i think you say what, what are people looking for in their religion are they looking for things in the here and now I think sometimes they are looking for guidance. But I actually think, I mean, in a way, I, I, I'm going to sound like I'm un, uh, understanding my own book because I think that what you get when you look at Jesus' teachings just as teachings secularised is actually not what most people get from Jesus, <laughs> believers or not believers, right? Because I think that a lot of people who are interested in religion for the here and now 
are interested not so much in a set of like philosophical teachings. They're interested in a way of life and a form of life and a community, which is a really, really important thing. So what I'm trying to get at here is actually something which perhaps most people don't even go looking for. But interestingly enough, it's something that a lot of people claim is there. A lot of people do claim that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Yeah. Well, I think that's perfect. Yeah. I think, and I think that's perfectly fair. And when I was reading your book, and I've made a lot of underlinings on it, I, I was interested in my own response to your book my personal response, and it, I thought to myself, I do what you do. I set out to be rather a different person from you and read the stuff in a different way, and I observe Christianity in a different way, but actually, I'm making judgments about it and how, how it can help me, which means jettison, jettisoning, leaving aside, ignoring or not believing in, large parts of it oh i thought perhaps i'm not so different <laughs> the difference is what we mean by god of course and what we mean by divinity and i don't mean by god or divinity what a first century palestinian thought about divinity or god i can't because i'm the child of an enlightenment and a post-scientific culture and all the rest of it i have to think about god and this strange word divinity which i'm not sure is a very helpful word um i have to think about it in a different kind of way uh, let me put one idea i was reading the mahabharata recently that sort of thing that Tardin's doing i had to understand hinduism a bit better and reading the mahabharata it seemed to me i was reading the first second book of the kings and the first second book of samuel you know, it's bloodthirsty warfare between these archetypal god warrior figures. It's terribly, terribly similar to the ancient Mesopotamian sagas that we get in, in these parts of the Old Testament. Secondly, so that's rather good. I think, oh, good. You know, Hinduism in its some of its ancient literature and Judeo-Christianity in its ancient literature are very similar. The difference between us, both the Mahabharata, Hinduism, Christianity, and Christianity, and the classical world, seems to me about sex. I came to this vision this morning, thinking about your book, and that is that in the Old Testament, God behaves extremely badly by killing people. He's a vicious, racist, genocidal maniac a lot of the time. Um, that's one of the troubles with God. In the classical uh, world, the gods are having sex all the time, behaving <laughs> just like us. And I think how much nicer that is, and what you know, how much more attractive and less destructive it is for the gods to have sex than it is for the gods to go around killing everybody. That's just to say you know, a bad thing about my own tradition. But that was uh, it's something that I had with uh, when I was on tour with with uh, <clears throat> Brian Cox last year. We were in Singapore, and one afternoon we went to the Museum of Asian Culture. And it has this fantastic huge, one of the floors, like the second floor, is all religion. And you just yeah. walk around and you see these incredible effigies of lusty, furious, prankster gods. You see playfulness, you see desire. And then you go into the Christian room and you see a man being tortured by his own father. 
which is how I would just yeah. And you suddenly go, my God, the, the difference, though, in terms of that image. And, and also, I think, because one of the problems uh, for is I, I do think God is a very bad uh, parental role model. And, and I think we actually do see it reflected sometimes in that this is my house. These are my rules. And it came to and it really felt so. And I know there's a lot of other things within it. But in terms of the image alone, we had gone from all of that possibility of all of those things that are in the human mind as well. Each God seems to represent another thing that exists of, 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 of our desires. And then there was punishment. Yes. And I just wanted Julian, you know, that 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 first of all, just that that sense of the story of Jesus seems to be the one that, you know, you go into every church and you see this. That's the image you see is someone in pain, a, a sad person in in pain. Yeah. And I think that, of course, of course you do. And I think I've always struggled with that. And the idea that, you know, blessed are the, the weak and blessed are the poor, that there's somehow a glorification of suffering potentially in the New Testament. But I don't think that's the only way to read it, to be honest, um, at all. I mean, essentially, uh, the, the idea that the poor are blessed, right? Uh, how can the poor be blessed? Well, actually, it's not an idea which was unfamiliar in the world that Jesus inhabited at all. And in fact, you know, in the Greco-Roman world, there were lots of philosophers and sages who thought similar things. The idea was simply this, that this mortal body is corrupt and frail. It doesn't last long. And we don't, we can't control it necessarily, either. And the, the, and therefore, it, the things that are of value, and things that are of value have to be things which are more, you know, traditionally you'd say of the soul or the spirit, or you might say of, of ethics of, of of virtue. So to live a good life, you've got to concentrate on those things which are of true value. And the problem with wealth is that wealth distracts us from that. You get caught up with it, you know, you get obsessed by earning the next money, not because you're necessarily a nasty, greedy person. That's what money does. It captures your attention. And we're, well, I say maybe we're not all guilty of it. I get guilty of it myself, thinking too much about where am I going to get my next paycheck as a, as a freelance and so forth. And so the idea of the poor and the weak being blessed is not actually that it's a great thing to have nothing. It's like, oh, glorious you and everything. It's more like the, the blessing is that the very, at, the least, the le at the very least, you are liberated from that excessive attachment to, to wealth. And as for suffering, again, I think it would be perverse and I think grossly immoral to say that suffering was good in itself. But the point about suffering is what, what is good about suffering is when people choose, they make the choice to suffer themselves to the benefit of others. Now, you, everyone believes that's a wonderful thing. When we were all out there clapping for NHS in the early stages of the pandemic, it was because we thought, you know, greater love hath no man than they, he or mm. she who risks themselves for others. And that message, I think, is so much more powerful if Jesus dies on the cross. When he's mm. resurrected, it's the get out of jail. He went, ah, that out, fooled you. You know, it, he didn't really lay down his life for us if he was resurrected three days later. So I think, again, this is, this is an example of how if you do sort of like look at the story, you look at the story as a, as a fully human story and you take away those other things, you, you get quite powerful messages, I think. And, and I think they're kind of, in a sense, you lose something without the, the supernatural. What you lose is the possibility of ultimate redemption and salvation. But, but you also gain things as well. You gain a kind of real, I think, seriousness there. Can, can, I, can, I, can I come in there and say that when the early Christians looked at Jesus on the cross, um, they see something about the nature of God. 
they they say, and I believe this myself, that the crucifixion of Jesus modifies our understanding of God. God is revealed in this suffering. That's what we come back to again and again in Christian rituals like the Eucharist. We're coming back to contemplate the idea that God is completely different in reality from omnipotent almightiness. God is given into our hands, as it were. And what do we do? We crucify him. And that very strange image is at the heart of it all. And is seen, of course, as a paradox in the New Testament. So St. John says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The crucifixion is the victory that overcomes the world. In Berlin, in the Kaiser Wilhelm Church, the church that was very badly bombed by the Allies during the war, there's a memorial to the martyrs of the Lutheran Church under, under Hitler. And in German, it has written on in front of this marvellous medieval crucifix, um, this is our faith that has overcome the world. And I find that extraordinarily moving, even now just telling the story, thinking of people who went to the gas chambers and people like Bonhoeffer hung in the prison at Flossenburg for his, uh, his uh, standing up to Hitler, that that Christians look at this death of Jesus and the death of the martyrs as, as a victory, as a triumph. And what that means, some of us spend our lives in front of, trying to let that work in us. And, it, and to use your word divinity, it changes our understanding of divinity. So I suppose part of the problem with the whole story is that if you have a story for 2000 years, as we know, if you have a story for two days in the tabloid or in any, any newspaper, uh, it becomes entirely, you know, it will be interpreted. It will be a Rorschach test for what people wish to imprint o o on it. And so I think it is interesting where to use the word, as you said, Julian, which is the idea of us being corrupt as opposed to the idea, I think, with some of those other religions we were talking about is that we are flawed. And yes. that we are, and 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 I think that what, and it's, that's why I find interesting about the godless gospel, but as well, which is because, yes. and I find it interesting to anyone who actually is actively, doubtfully interacting with their faith is all of these issues come up. But when you are not doing that, you have this story which says someone died for you, and you are letting them down. You know, because mm -hmm. it seems to me, you know, in the same way, the Garden of Eden, there may be many different ways of, of talking about the interpretation of the fall of man. But the one that is most simply just taken is I made all this for you and you yeah. went and did this. Get out. Yeah. So yes. that's the, yes. the hard thing, which is it's yes. one thing when you interact. Sorry. Well, I think I think that we've come to something very important, which is that a fundamental idea in Christianity, hugely developed by St. Paul and then St. Augustine, and then by the Reformation, is the fall. And I think the fall is a complete mistake. Mm. <laughs> it does, it now, does get us off on a bad foot, basically, doesn't it? It's, yeah, uh, never, but it's interesting how it's conceived, isn't it? Because, I mean, again, if you take the fall as, as, as myth, what's the, what's the myth trying to tell us? And I think that, you know, any kind of wisdom tradition that has it worth its salt will tell us that human beings are flawed, as you said, Robin, you know, flawed. 
And yep. the difference between flawed and corrupt, how, how big a difference is that really? And I don't know. I think obviously, you know, the Christian church over the years has developed this, this notion of the fall and has, has, has put it in a way which I think is, is profoundly un, unhelpful. But I think that, you know, if you look at the words attributed to Jesus in, in the Gospels, I don't think he is there sort of pointing the fingers, telling us we're wicked and that we're awful and that we, sh we should be sorry. He's actually saying, he's, he's, he's saying, he's being sympathetic. He's saying that, you know, we're all in this position of grace. And it's, it's a call to sympathy and humanity. So in the story of the woman caught in adultery, by the way, which is interesting in so many levels, because it, part, part of it, it shows there, there are real complexities in, 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 in the sexual ethics of Jesus, which are actually, the first thing to say about that is not terribly important. But the key point about this story is this, the woman has sinned, but he turns to the people who want to stone her and says, you know, you is without sin, throw the first stone. And, and no one could do that. So actually, he's not using the sinfulness of everyone as a stick to beat them with. He's using his way of saying to everybody, well, look, come on, be humble. And before you start judging others, work on yourself. You need to work on yourself. Be the perfect. You can't be perfect. You've got to try to be as perfect as you can, because that's the thing that most values in your life your your own character your your your, your own virtue if you like forget about wealth and money and all that kind of thing but yeah. i thought that bit in your book was one of the best things the way you talked about that and the way you drew people's attention to silence i thought it was very interesting isn't it jesus doesn't say anything he just sort of bites on the ground and you know books have been written about what was jesus really writing <laughs> but he wasn't really writing anything. He was just saying, you know, well, you just think yourselves and I'll just wait. And yeah. I think just waiting for people, to, for the penny to drop, for people to get it, is a terribly important part of religion, which religious practitioners like me often get wrong because we think we've got to explain everything. It happens in the New Testament itself. Jesus tells a parable. And the people don't understand it. Say, oh, what's it mean? And then you get the sermon from the early church attached to the parable. The seed is the word of God. You know, the parable of the sower. And the, the next bit, you can hear it. It's some awful vicar preaching a rather second-rate sermon. What Jesus did was to tell a funny story and leave it. <laughs> well, that's an interesting... Because talking to some people who have you know left the church and some people one of the problems with pippa evans for instance who started uh, sunday assembly and yeah. uh you know she very much describes her her teenage years as making out with jesus you know that was her kind of and and then she said that there was the point where she realized the bureaucracy was more important than the community and the curiosity yeah. these yeah. things came up and, and that seems to be because some of the criticisms that i've been throwing are not criticisms of the the necessarily the stories themselves but it is exactly as you said the interpretation which is do you wish to be active with your knowledge i think it's the same in you know when we talk about science education yes. and all these things yes. are you yes. saying here are some equations learn them that is all you need to know you have them are yes. you saying that or are you saying here are some ideas and keep them in your head and every now and again when you look at the stars or you look at a moment of confrontation or you look at whatever it is th you know, so that's it seems to me that once you get whatever it is, a, a body of knowledge which is used to control, then it will become detached from the stories which it originally grew from. Julian, does that sound... Yeah, I mean, yeah. Is that part of the activity of this book, perhaps? Well, I think, I think so. I mean, I think that time and again, 
Um, I mean, even even if you leave the reckless bits in, it is striking how much of the obsessions and history of the Christian church seems to have had the complete opposite of, of the Gospels, in, in, embarrassingly so, actually, you know. And, and, and I think the thing about the institutions is particularly striking, you know. There, there's always room for interpretation with, with what Jesus said, because, you know, he did leave things open. He did want you to think for yourself. Um, and so that wriggle room, but the, the way some people exploit it is extraordinary. I think one of the most obviously straightforward things in, in, in his teachings was he was entirely against ecclesiastical establishment and hierarchies. You know, yes, there, shall, there shall be no rabbis, right? He said it very, very clearly. Uh, and I'd like to know from Victory, how did the Christian church get from <laughs> this really explicit teaching about this to the arcane and, and complex bureaucracies and structures that we see, well, not just in Roman Catholicism, but, you know, in lots of other denominations too. I mean, that just seems... I, I can't quite see how people could do that without very, very heavy dissonance, to be honest. Well, shall I answer that? Uh, yeah. in, in the business, we have something called the routinization of the kerygma. Yeah. The routinization of the kerygma. So you have this explosion of love and new way of being a person in Jesus. And we immediately make it into an extraordinarily complex bureaucracy, partly because it for, for a, the good reason, the only good reason, is it has to survive. So the whole stuff has to go on somehow, and that needs organisation. But everything else immediately starts to go wrong. And it goes wrong very, very early. I mean, by the, by the second century, you're getting it all set up. And I, I do hope that as you make these criticisms, you realise you are talking to a retired dean. Yeah, I know. <laughs> a very Dr. Victor Stock, OAM, a member of the Order of Australia, etc. You know, I'm a very great dignitary. And these, <laughs> this whole stuff, I mean, this is, you're absolutely right. I, I, mm. I, it's very sad that you are right on a number of occasions in this book. You are <laughs> right about this. And we're, we're completely boxed in by it. So that in the end, you know, the beginning of the 21st century, we have an Archbishop of Canterbury who falls over backwards to show how ordinary he is by saying Mass of Easter Day in his kitchen, which is kind of reaction against Well, I don't, I don't want to have an in for the Archbishop of Canterbury, but the other day, oh, another thing on. struck me extraordinarily, which was that he's taking a sabbatical at the moment, isn't he? And they were oh, saying God. that where he would be spending this sabbatical, and one of the places he'd be spending it was his house in France. Now, I thought, how could this religion, which preaches materialistic minimalism, the, the head of it in the UK owns another home in France? And I know this isn't actually untypical, actually. A lot of, I, mean, I, I know more, at least, I know several clergy people who have more than one home, actually. So, and this is, you know, he who has two coats to give to those who have one. Well, these are people with two two homes, <laughs> let alone two coats. Extraordinary, I think. And and I'm not saying that makes him a I did wicked person at all. But... There were some probably people in high-rise blocks in Sunderland who don't have a chance of a sabbatical to mm. go to Canada or their second home. I thought it was an extraordinarily tin-eared thing to do in the middle of this pandemic, I must say. Mm. Is there a... I mean, that, that, that's a... a... Again, that kind of disconnection, I think, is, is, is an interesting idea of, of how 
I'm trying to put put this in the right words without without so, but but I I know that you've had uh you know when when you were fully active in the, in 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 the church, Victor. You know the, there was sometimes you would say the frustration with the congregation from their mm. interpretation from that day. So how do you get across, you know that that sense of, of 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 curiosity, that sense of of the active that it is not just an answer because that does seem to be mm. humans do they are drawn towards dogma, they are mm. drawn towards you tell me what I want to eat because I can't work it out. Just tell me what I'm going to have off the menu. That yes. is yeah. So how do we is there a way that you've found of managing to draw out that sense of you are allowed to engage and the answers are not as crystal clear as some of the sermons you have heard may well say i i don't think it's a difficult task i think if you look at the texts and you try to be sensible intelligent about the texts you you very quickly find that people are asking the same questions or have been puzzled by the same things so, you know, they are as puzzled as everybody else is by a God who, who's only happy by killing his son. And when you try to explain that this isn't perhaps what it really was meant to be about, people are very relieved. A small group of people want it all to be literally true. And they are always the people on television and radio. I mean, they always get, because they're confrontational and stupid, they always get the airtime. But an enormous number of ordinary people have the same questions and difficulties as everybody else always has but they don't write if i may say so they don't get to write the books mm. or make the television programs and i find that if i'm honest to try to be honest about myself and what i understand which changes as time goes by according to what i'm reading what i'm thinking and how I'm feeling, all those things. <clears throat> that relates to nearly everybody I have to deal with nearly all the time. I mean, I've been a priest for over 50 years and I very rarely meet people who know the answers. The people who do know the answers, of course, are balmy. And you <laughs> can't do anything with them because they're nuts. And you just have to be kind to them and, you know, bring the conversation to a close without killing them. But most of those... <laughs> You can't do anything with them, but they're a very, very small group. I mean, at the moment, for example, the church, the evangelical party in the Church of England is going through one of its anti-gay phases. There's a very interesting PhD to be written about why evangelicals are so anti-gay. It's very peculiar. And they're terribly, terribly excited about the idea that the church might begin to accept gay and lesbian people. And they're really furious about it. And they produced a rather awful little video it's just embarrassingly awful about how to be nasty to gay people in a nicer way that's really what the bishops want to do they want to go on being nasty but in a nicer way so that they look more like they think jesus is there's a subject on which jesus has absolutely nothing mm. to say exactly. i would highly most, recommend most, most people don't have those problems it's only a few religious people who have those problems 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was leaving Alexandria, Richard Holloway's book, the uh, um, which was, yeah. uh, and he's former Bishop of Edinburgh, and uh, um, it is now kind of detached from the from the church, really. And uh, um, he's he's a I can't remember the name Martin Rees, the astronomer royal uses. There's a certain kind of a non-believing Christian. I can't remember exactly what he what he but he's, um, but leaving Alexandria is very interesting because he does talk about the uh, um, the bishops' conference where the real point where he felt he had to leave the church he'd had problems with in terms of uh when people were questioning why women were allowed in the church but he said robert runcie was a an archbishop of canterbury who knew how to play the game he knew <laughs> we're gonna get there but i'm gonna have to do some tricks whereas i think with the 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 next one who's a lumping name i forget now who pops up every yeah, day yes him and and he found that when he was then uh at, with with the bishops and it came on to uh in terms of lgbt in in the church it was so aggressive and it was so filled with hate. And that was when he felt, I can't be part of it. And yet so many of his beliefs, that's the interesting thing to me, which is those people who go, I'm, I'm going to carry so many of the things that I've learned from the church with me, but I am now going to remove myself from the church. And I actually remove myself from, again, the supernatural beliefs. That's an interesting transition, I think, that occurs with it, within... There are two, two books that Richard has written since leaving Alexandria, which I recommend. One is Waiting for the Last Bus, being an old man waiting to die, it's terribly funny and very, very good. And the book he's just published, Stories We Tell Ourselves, it's a wonderful book and very near some of the things Julian is writing about in his book, Godless Gospel. It's just a timely book to read at the moment. Now, I'm, I'm interested, Julian, on... on uh the you you say that you when you were in the book that when you were growing up you were a committed christian mm. at least into your teens but not perhaps out of your teens is, yeah. is, is that fair and um, do you remember what what did jesus and the bible mean to you was it something active or was it something which had been in inherited well i mean it, it's it's, a, it's difficult to reconstruct these things isn't it because obviously as a when i was a primary school age it was just i went to a roman catholic primary school and it was just what everyone kind of believed you just did it and it became problematic for me at secondary school because at secondary school I, I really realized just how uh, secular the, uh, British culture was you know um, all these people the religion just didn't seem to matter one jot to anybody and and this kind of bothered me because I thought I believe that God existed <laughs> and I had some reason to believe that um, the Christianity was the form in which it, it should come to us and, and and I thought well look I can't you can't just sort of like forget about this to take it seriously so i think the point was in those teenage years i was active in it in the sense that i it, it, i was doing something deliberate and purposeful by even continuing to have any engagement with it at all um and i went to a methodist church and i found that yeah i just found that that engagement it just sort of very very slowly kind of fell apart bit by bit there wasn't there wasn't a great moment the closest i came to an epiphany was nothing to do with doctrine actually because i think that one of the things that people get wrong about religion is that um a lot of most people do not believe it on the basis that they they assent intellectually to a set of propositions around creed um they most people i think are religious on the basis of, of some kind of feeling of experience i mean sometimes that's a very specific experience people literally believe that they've felt jesus come into their hearts in the evangelical sense 
I think it's more of a kind of a, a background feeling, a sense of the divine presence in, in the world, you know, God in, in the flower, God in, in, in daily life. Um, and that was kind of quite stressed quite a lot. In, in the Methodist Church had this um, association of youth clubs, and it was actually headed by quite an evangelical bunch, actually. The Methodist Church, again, quite diverse, but the, the youth movement was headed by a fairly evangelical lot. And they used to organise a weekend in London every, every year, a huge gathering. And you can imagine it culminated, you're in the Royal Albert Hall, full of young people. And they had the kind of fairly evangelical type service. There's even the kind of come on down moment at the end, you know, and all of that. And, and you know, you, you went away from that buzzing. You know, you buzz, 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 buzz. Great, great, great. Anyway, the last time I went, my faith was wavering big time. And in a way, I kind of saw the, the final kind of, not quite test. I, I almost set the test to God in a way. But isn't it an experiential way? So, you know, look, this worship is a time to recharge so you know maybe you can sort of like help me with my faith here anyway the point was i i'd hardly stepped off the bus on the saturday morning and i was throwing up violently i was really sick i was ill the whole weekend as a consequence i was a bit better on the sunday and so i, I watched this worship from from the top balcony at the royal abbot hall feeling a little bit nauseous and that to me was the ultimate revelation because in that slightly detached way, I could see that what was going on was not a cynical exercise in mass hysteria, but it was mass hysteria. It was whipping up the atmosphere slowly, slowly. And being a bit ill, being a bit distant, I wasn't caught up in it. I could just see it for what it was. And that I, I came away from that sort of, yeah, that's a moment where I thought, well, that, that's, I've kind of had it, had it with this. You know, it, it's, it's, and, and it made me sad because the church was a fantastic community. It was a lovely, lovely community. So I didn't stop going to church straight away. I mean, that just fizzled out as I went to university. I, the community was wonderful, but what it, what it, what it was representing, I, I couldn't see it. So it's, it's interesting that even as a philosopher, you know, my final kind of break with religion wasn't based on an argument. It was based on kind of seeing, as it were, understanding the nature of religious experience as being something entirely natural <laughs> and psychological rather than spiritual. Well, that community thing, I think, is I, I remember... Um, Christopher Hitchens once talking about the fact that he didn't need all that kind of rubbish uh, as, it, a bit, as if he was alone. But of course, Christopher Hitchens would probably be at the Vanity Fair party and would mm -hmm. be at various different drinks do's with Martin Amis and would be. And I think that's the bit that sometimes gets missed out sometimes from the atheist argument, which is some of those people who are talking about that already have an entirely different set of things which are their community, which does hold them together. And I think that, that again, you know, Victor, before when we were talking about one of the things that alienates is, I think people do feel that perhaps more than the God-shaped hole, which sometimes gets used here, it's actually the loss of a sense of, you see it in, I mean, you know, when you watch the film Behind the Curve about flat earth conventions and flat earth believers, so much part of that belief is about we we have got this shared thing which many other people reject and therefore makes our community even stronger and, that's, and... that's part of the secret of trump's success hasn't it been mm. that he he's assiduously and very cleverly built a community yeah i think that's true the um I, I want to just uh, because we benefit this so much. I, by the way, Julian, I apologize. I didn't get to question one. I, I made lots of notes. <laughs> just just so people know, the Godless Gospel is a very interesting book for anyone who is interested. Whether whether you are whatever your religion might be or your lack of religion, I think there's a lot of different questions in there yeah, about yeah. interpreting. And, it's worth uh, reading. Thank and um, 
Uh, and it is, you know, what I, but I, what I always find intriguing whenever I read any books about Jesus is from both of you, starting with you, Victor, what is it about this story? When we think that history is filled with fascinating stories of, of philosophers, of innovators, of prophets, mm. and yet one third of the world, this story has somehow become the dominant story so many different interpretations so many different denominations but nevertheless this story has survived in a way where you know we don't see that with plato and socrates and confucius and all of those that you know that they they, they survive but they they don't have that what is it about this story do you think and about the story of jesus which has meant it has such power i think it's what Julian talks about in his book, which is it has enabled people to become more human in community. It's not individualistic, it's communal. We are the body of Christ, we say. Creeds begin, we believe in, okay? And then at the heart of it is failure, the death of this young man seen in the first century as victory and uh, Michael Ramsey who was one of the greatest archbishops of Canterbury put it like this he said Good Friday is not a defeat that needs Easter to reverse it rather it is a victory so signal that Easter comes quickly to seal it And Julian, for you, as someone who, having, having been a committed Christian, the, uh, and and uh, you would probably define yourself as an atheist now, I know oh, agnostic yes. atheist, it, it becomes semantics eventually, uh, well, very early on, but it's, um, how did you, returning and, and looking at this story and, and, and studying the, the, the story in the, in the four Gospels, has that changed, is the person who started writing that book, is your idea of Jesus changed? I think I think it is. I think it is actually because I mean, when I started out this project, the, the worry would be there wasn't much to say actually. That we'd find out that there were a few stories about loving thy neighbour and all that kind of stuff, and take away the the resurrection and all that kind of stuff. There's not a lot left. Um, and I found actually it was much much more interesting than I thought it would be. And what I found was interesting enough as part of writing the book, I did sort of have long conversations with various uh, theologians and Christians, because I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just being silly about Jesus and getting it wrong. And to a, to a, to a man and woman, they, they said that you don't find a complete moral teaching in the gospel. That's just not the point of it. And, mm -hmm. and there are reasons why, therefore, for them, simply seeing as a moral teacher isn't, isn't enough. But even if you do take that away, what you do get is this person who provides a lot of you know, moral challenges to us, I think. I think he remains a very, very challenging figure who asks, in a sense, too much of us. And in, in yes. some way, and sometimes asks us, asks the wrong things of us sometimes. I don't, I don't think everything you ask of us is the right thing to ask. But it's, mm. it's challenging, it's unsettling. And I'm a person who, I take most of my reality from people like Aristotle and Hume, who are good humanists, who are all about, they're much more kind of life-affirming, you know, all more about enjoying this life for what it is and everything. But I think when you when when that is your moral framework, 
Um, that is a morality which really works best for the people who already have a certain degree of comfort, who, who have the possibility of flourishing in this life. And life remains a deep struggle for a lot of people. So I think part of what Jesus does is he's, he's like a gadfly, you know, he's a Socratic gadfly, puncturing that complacency and, 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 and sort of like reminding us that, you know what, there's, there's a lot to think about, a lot to take seriously. And, and he's a great antidote to that. No, I, I think this. I think one of the things that we've definitely learned in the last ten years as well is that uh, we need conversation. Whatever people's kind of like uh, more mystical beliefs, if you want to say it, supernatural beliefs, we may well find that we have an enormous amount of common ground in how we actually live our lives and how we try to accept it and all of those. And I think that's definitely. Uh, but this is a different story. My God, we'll have to do part two of this podcast. Um, sorry, Victor. I think you had something else to say as well. Uh, no, I'm, I'm. I'm just admiring, really. And I, I think I want to say to Julian that the most valuable parts of his book for me have been the bits which I've initially disagreed with and <laughs> been annoyed by. And then rather like the teaching of Jesus, I've had to think, oh, oh dear, he, he might be right here. Shit. <laughs> Basically, you know you're not going to end up covering everything, and I and it is a, a very interesting book. As I said before, the Godless Gospel is out now. Uh, it's uh, it's it's from Granter, and I, I recommend both. I also recommend both those books by Richard Holloway. That we, we've done book shambles on both of those with Richard, and uh, I recommend a lot of uh, Julian's other books as well, which are always just such great ways of getting into philosophical ideas and being introduced to things that very often, sometimes when you see the the writing of, of some, sometimes philosophy. Can seems to be to deliberately opaque to elevate itself and that's something which i think julian's book work is always a, a, an accessible route into a lot of interesting ideas so thank you very much everyone for listening thank you very much to all of our patreon supporters which mean that we can uh, keep making this and we can keep making it but thanks to your patreon support we're able to put out a version that is free to everyone and accessible to everyone and uh we will see you next week's book shambles thank you very much to julian and victor thank you Goodbye. so much robin and victor thank you very much for listening thank you very much for your support on patreon remember you can go to patreon.com bookshambles to support us or just go to like apple Podcasts and rate and review five stars that would be fantastic and finally uh whatever you're doing over this end of year period uh, whether you're celebrating christmas or having a few days off or maybe you're not having a few days off because you're a healthcare worker or an essential services worker thank you very much if you are uh we hope you have a great holiday season thanks for listening we'll be back with a new episode next week bye for now this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network Josie Robbins' book shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.